Hello, everybody. Welcome to this brand new episode of the Satisfied God Podcast. Uh, Raven Bird with you once again. It's always a pleasure to be able to share with you on these uh, podcasts. And thank you so much, those of you who are letting me know that you're out there listening. Uh, you know who you are, the ways you reach out to me. And that means a whole lot to know that these lessons are beneficial to you and to your growth and um, that they are being used to uh, further an understanding or to um, incline your heart to seek the Lord for greater understanding and a greater understanding of Christ comes in the revealing of Christ and that's what these lessons are set for that's what the objective is not to get you convinced that I'm right but to exalt the Lord to glorify the Christ that abides within his body to the point that your heart is motivated and inclined as the Queen of Sheba when she heard of the greatness of Solomon to see this man to actually for yourself examine and discover the immensity and immeasurableness of his greatness and that's what this is all about for me. And for that, I'm grateful to the Lord and I'm grateful to you for being out there and listening. And having said that, let me thank you who enabled this to happen by financially supporting it. I don't tell you enough how much I appreciate that. Uh, but I just want you to know that I do. I don't take it for granted at all. I know how much you have work for money. I know how valuable it is and um, how much more expensive everything is. Uh, every dollar is valuable. And so I know that's the same with those who see fit and are um, inclined to be able to support what I do here and for that I am grateful and I appreciate it so much let me just say uh, the YouTube channel is still going I do post these podcasts not only on the Podbean and other podcast uh, <clears throat> software or sites streaming sites but it goes up on the YouTube channel it's not video but right now I post the audio version on the on the YouTube channel is the Satisfied God uh, podcast on, on YouTube. So you can go there as well and listen to it. Also want to say that I'm hoping to be able, um, you know, I'm putting this out there for people who are listeners and who may have a group or something uh, that they would like to have this gospel presented that maybe some you know next year i'm hoping to be able to do more um traveling uh with that in mind you know not going to just anywhere and everywhere but just going places where this gospel is actually desired where people actually want to hear this and 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 grow in the comprehension of the truth uh whether you be a Bible group or, you know, Bible study or whatever. It doesn't have to be in person. We can set up Zoom calls, whatever. However, uh, we could facilitate it. If you are hungry to know 
the truth as the truth is in Christ and I want to be available in that way and so you know if that's something you want if that's something you're after let me know I'd be glad to talk to you and, and set something up in that direction and we'll see what happens but uh, you know I, I just I just wanted before we get into the lesson this is a lesson I recorded uh, or that was recorded on a Sunday session that I did um, and it echoes in a lot of ways the thing that was in the previous uh, episode about the power exerted in Christ and the raising up from the dead and how the body is the is the body that is the recipients and partakers of such power as we say it's the greatest exhibition of the power of God is the fact that he has brought souls from death into life that he has brought Jew Gentile into one man into one body and made all who have believed partakers of a life that has that is victorious over sin and death and corruption that stands as the head and the sovereign ruler of a new creation of a kingdom full of his glory his light and his fullness that is a reality only the spirit of god can make known in our hearts that is a reality no man can teach into you we can speak these things as absolute truth because they are they're absolute truth in christ they're absolute truth in you if christ is in you but the greatness of it the riches and wealth of such a gift that God has provided is, is something that only God can make known and open our eyes to see. And so in all of these lessons, that is my prayer for you, for myself, and I hope that it is your prayer as well. Open the eyes of my heart. Show me the Son who abides within. Show me the fullness that he is. Let me see the salvation of the Lord. So, with that said, again, thank you for being with us. Thank you for listening. And let's get to the lesson. We are uh, going to continue in Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we're not going fast, but we're going. <laughs> In these, uh, I guess the, the the thing you wait on, or the thing I wait on, unfortunately, is to be able to actually say what I'm seeing, <laughs> and that never really happens, and that's frustrating to a degree. Uh, but you understand that these are realities that God has to make known, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. And there's a reason for that. It's because what we've come to is spirit. What we've come to is divine. What we've come to is God. And nothing of us is involved in it. And that, that takes man totally out of the picture. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that man is not an active uh, role taker and determining factor here. God has done what God has done. He has made us partakers of a reality that is perfect and complete. 
And because of the nature of that reality, God must open the eyes of our heart. God must unveil our soul to see that reality or we're going to see the things that are familiar to us and begin to define reality by those things. We're going to look at ourselves, our actions, our labors, our lack thereof, and think that that's either qualifying or disqualifying, which is unfortunate. I used to be one who thought that God was interested in my productivity. And I would try my best to study enough and do enough and pray enough and teach enough and work enough to make God happy. That my efforts were some way determinant of how close I was to him. When the whole time God had made me closer than I could ever imagine by making my soul the habitation of his beloved. And all he was calling me to was to know and to see and to comprehend the reality in which I am already perfectly comprehended. And that is the best of news, but it is also the most frustrating news you could ever hear because it's out of our hands. It makes, us, it makes us weak. And for some of us, it exposes our weakness. It exposes us. And we feel naked in that situation until we see the garment with which we have been clothed. We see the sufficiency of another man in the light of our insufficiency, and we don't balk at it and argue with it and wrestle with it. We rejoice. And that's the work of God in the heart. That's the work of the power of his life in the soul is to show us that in the midst of our weakness that is always there and will always be there, in the midst of our insufficiency that's always there and always will be there, he reigns. He abides. He is sufficient. And therein is the need to see him. Therein is the need to see the salvation of the Lord that has been given. Otherwise, I'm going to be enthralled with and obsessed with my productivity. What I do for God and all of that. And there's nothing wrong with doing these things. There's not, not one thing at all wrong with it until it begins to define your salvation. Until it begins to procure for you a sense of security because of that. Because one day you won't be able to. One day that's going to fail, that's going to fall apart. One day your body's going to say, no more. What happens then? Nothing. As far as reality is concerned, as far as your soul's state of being is concerned, and as far as God's delight is concerned, because his delight has nothing to do with us. But his delight by his mercy has been bestowed to us, And he's made us beneficiaries of his own satisfaction. And so the soul, again, is called to see such a thing. So Paul writes in Ephesians, based upon every... Now, what I've been saying is basically what he has said in the first part of chapter 1. And then he prays that the eyes... This is verse 18 of chapter 1. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened that you may know what is the hope 
And this actually should be worded, the hope unto which you have been called and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, um, I want to read a little further because this will continue into the headship of Christ over his body. Verse 22, and hath put all things, the word things there is not there, just to point that out, hath put all under his feet. And gave him the head over all to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And there's a reason I wanted to continue to read that part, because there's a reason Paul begins to speak of the nature of his headship and the fullness of him that fills his body. Why is that significant? Because of the exceeding greatness of his power that he's talking about right here. That body is a partaker of his exceedingly wrought and exhibited power. This is not something yet to be. This is a reality we are yet to know in its fullness, but the fullness of that exhibition of his power has taken place. In fact, you know, I think in the last time that I was speaking uh, here, I talked about the inheritance and Christ being the one who has first given the inheritance as the heir that comes. God has given me all things, and then he says, come to me. I know the Father, the Father knows me, all of that. This is the heir speaking to those who have been promised an inheritance, and he's saying the only way that you can receive the inheritance promised is coming to me. Because first, it belongs to me. The inheritance is secured because it first belongs to me. It's in my hands. It is my rightful possession. How do we partake of that inheritance? We are found in the air. We live in the air. The air is our life. The one to whom God has given all things is my life. It's not in my hands to either fumble it or hold it closely. The inheritance doesn't belong to me, so I can't make it disappear. (laughs) I can't deplenish the greatness of it. It's first and ultimately his possession. The Father gave to him all things. And that gift to my soul was the heir of all things is now abiding in this soul. Making my soul joint heirs with him, making my soul a partaker of the inheritance, and that is his inheritance in the saints. Again, when you're reading commentaries, they seem to gloss over that little phrase, his inheritance. They gloss over that, and they begin to talk about an inheritance we have, what we have. No, it's his. That's what makes it sure sure to us. That's what makes it un, uh, as, as Peter will talk about it, Something that is cannot decay, something that is kept perfect, that is doesn't fade away. 
perfect in His grasp. The fragility of it, we give to it. We think it's fragile. We think the things of God are fragile. I guess, see, that's because we see them in the light of our fragileness. That's why we see them given to us. These are things God gives to us in salvation. Instead of realizing they belong to him. All things belong to him. So he does not give us things. God gives us him. And in the, in, the, in the receiving of him, we receive all things that he is. That's him made unto us. That is not him making us. It is him made unto us. That's a whole different concept. And this is the reason that the eyes of our soul must be open to see a reality greater, far above ourselves. Because otherwise we're trapped in the familiarity of the fragileness of the earthen vessel instead of glorying and rejoicing in the sufficiency and supremacy of the treasure that abides in it. And that's a work only God can do. The perspective of the soul must be turned and oriented according to God's perspective of things. God's view must become the view of the heart now that's something man can't do. I can't learn that. I can't teach that into anybody. I can't study the Hebrew and Greek and think I can see as God sees. No, God has to do a miracle, has to bring about a miraculous work called the revealing of his beloved son in our soul to show the soul the sufficiency of him where our hearts and our Minds will never revert back to try to find anything of that sufficiency in us again. We find reality where it is and where it always has been. And I promise you, it always has been in his beloved son. And we're going to see that he concluded all things there, ultimately, perfectly. And then he comes toward us with a gift. And that's... That's a beautiful thing because to realize this thing was already perfect, complete, ratified by God before I ever arrived, before I came to it, before my soul was invited by God to partake of it, it was already something in which he found his rest and his Sabbath. What does that mean? I can't do anything. To diminish the greatness of it. God has given to my soul in fullness and full bore, front loaded at the beginning of it, all things. He's not saying, well, you get this now, you get that later. That's not how this works. Of his fullness have we received. How does that happen? He is the head of his body. The fullness of him. That feels all. That's how you have received of his fullness. What is the need then? To see the head of the body. To know the one who gives to the body and fullest, fully nourishes and supplies the body with everything. And Colossians will say that and we'll read in a moment. But I want to begin just looking 
at something that John Calvin wrote, and it's actually a good thing that John Calvin wrote. <laughs> Don't find that all the time. And to me, what he says here is much more salvation, grace, Christ-centered than futuristic. Because most people read these things about the exhibition of his power and the power of his resurrection when he raised him from the dead. And somehow, some way, they'll say, that means that what God did in Jesus, in the raising up of Jesus from the dead, says that that power is the same power with which we will one day get up from the dead. Now, how that, how that can be what they glean from this when he's just described to them the power of God and the resurrection in a salvation wrought perfectly is beyond me. But the futuristic mindset, why? Well, we'll talk about that. But let's read the commentary first. This is from, again, John Calvin's commentary on these verses. He says, foolish men imagine that the language Paul uses here is hyperbolic. But those who are understanding and who are engaged and understand the struggles with inward corruption, man's own corruption, have no difficulty in perceiving that not a word used here is used beyond what is perfectly just. I want you to just focus on that for a second. People who don't understand the need of grace, the need of mercy, can read these words and say, he's just using hyperbolic language. No, when you understand the depravity of men, when you understand born in sin, corrupt, Dead in sin. You understand that there is an exceeding great power that was necessitated here. You understand Paul's not making hyperbolic statements. He is declaring in the most vivid and descriptive language as he can possibly come up with. In a way in his language to say how great this is. And he still falls short. We all do. But the exceeding greatness is understood as not hyperbolic at all. It is declaring in the even terms that are less than it how great and immense and perfect this is. And as the importance, this continuing the commentary, as the importance of the subject cannot be too strongly expressed, so our unbelief and ingratitude led Paul to employ this glowing language. We never form adequate conceptions of the treasure that has been revealed to us in the gospel. Or if we do, we cannot persuade ourselves that it is possible for us to do so because we perceive nothing in us that corresponds to it. But everything in the reverse. Paul's object, therefore, was not only to impress the Ephesians with a deep sense of the value of God's grace, but also to give them an exalted view of the glory of Christ's kingdom and power. That they might not be cast down by a view of their own unworthiness. 
He exhorts them to consider the power of God that has been given to them. As if he said that their regeneration was not an ordinary work, but was an astonishing exhibition of his power. I want you to hear that. That's what Paul is addressing here. That's why we must see this, because we look at all these things, the hope of his calling, and then we look at this about the exhibition of his power, and we think, look about the inheritance, and we think he's talking about three separate distinct things that we are to see and know. He's talking about salvation. Speaking of Christ as our salvation, that's what we must see. And it's very plainly when he says that you would come to the knowledge of him. He encompasses and personifies all of this. We're not learning subjects. We're not learning aspects of salvation. We're not gathering our little fragments together. We're seeing the whole of a great salvation that has been exhibited and given. That's the reality our souls are being awakened to and unveiled to. It's a full, complete, and perfect life in which every fullness abides. All spiritual blessings. He's still talking about those blessings. Now he's saying for those blessings not to be just something you believe you have, but you see the presence of the blessing you have in the seeing of the one blessing God has given you. Again, when we read spiritual blessings, it's not plural in the Greek, it's singular. Meaning in the one, all things are found. The simplicity of Christ, when you read it in the Greek, means simple, singular, and it means bountiful and full. How do both things happen at the same time? Because it's him. In one, all abides. In one man, all things that God had ever desired and predetermined to to exist. That which he preordained where he would find his delight and his ultimate Sabbath has been realized. Come and see. That's the spirit of God. That's this, the, the spirit of this prayer. But what do we do? We don't see him. We see ourselves. And we are obsessed with our own weaknesses. So we think God's whole purpose was to fix the weakness. To change us. There's been a change, all right, from death to life. Not from good boy to, I mean, bad boy to good boy, right? That's the change we look at. That's the change we think is sufficient. That's what we're always after. But even if we reach that pinnacle, according to our mind, we hadn't reached good yet. Good is a divine reality. There is none good but God. When you reach that by your efforts, when God is working on you to get to that, that's not what it's about. You're in an ever-constant cycle when that's the goal. The change, the fix, the good has come to you in one perfect gift. And your soul became a recipient of the fullness of that good, and your inward man was changed. We don't seem to understand that once and for all, that twinkling of an eye change that came at new birth. 
So we're obsessed with us. We say, God, fix this. Help me do this. Take this away from me like Paul did. And what was God's answer? My grace is already sufficient. That's not my grace is keeping you, Paul. I'm giving you grace on a daily basis. No, the grace that I've given to you in Christ is sufficient. And you look at yourself and you say, that can't be true. Why? Weakness. Me. Everything I see here is in reverse to what he is. Is, is in direct opposition. That's what he's saying here. And that's why the glowing terms of this seem absolutely ridiculous. So what do we do? We push it off into the far distant future. Well, it may be at one point in time that would be feasible. It's the far distant, undebatable future, right? Because you're like, well, one day it'll happen. One day we'll have a glorified body. <laughs> Where there's no sin and no bad and no corruption and all the stuff, you know, all that stuff. You're in a glorified body. You are his body. And he's the glory that glorifies it. He's the fullness that fills it. And you look again and you say, no. And that's the point. Stop looking where you can see a proof that you can point to and say, that's not it. That's it. That's not it. Because you're still missing the point. God has to show you his perspective. God has to open the soul to see reality as he has always defined it. And in the raising up of his son, it's not just something he's seen eternally. Now it's the raising up of a man in whom we can now live and have our being. Now in the raising up of Christ, he has raised up one who has victory over your corruption. Victory and defeated the death in which you abode. And he is the voice now. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing his absolute and ultimate power exerted in the risen Christ. In his beloved son whom he raised up. And now that son, as he says in John is the voice that calls to the dead and says, come. And those that hear his voice live. How do they live? In the power of his resurrection, in the power of his life, working in them, making reality not only a, a concrete and unmovable state, but a gift that God would unveil to your soul and make known to you. This is the sovereignty of a man ruling his kingdom, ruling his creation. That's what we're seeing here. A victory wrought of God in the raising up of his son from among the dead. And what does he do in the raising up? He creates a whole new creation. He brings forth an altogether new man filled with the fullness of his son. And it's that body, that church, that is called to know the head, to see the one. It is a man standing victorious over death, over sin and corruption, and inviting. This is the hope. This is the invitation to which we have been called. He's calling to those who are yet dead, who are yet condemned unto himself. To receive his 
victory. We're going to read that in a moment in a place that has been utterly put off into the future by most people who don't understand that presently, as we sit here today, we are partakers of his victory. His ultimate, perfect victory. He's not fighting battles. He's not fighting wars. Say to Israel, your victory has come. Your God reigns, right? Your warfare is over. Yep, that's the truth. That's why the soul must see him, because when we see anything other than him, there's war. So what happens? We start teaching on spiritual warfare and take those verses totally out of context. Because we're fighting devils and everything else we can get our hands on. Now he's overcome all of it. Once and for all. And he fills his body with the substance and certainty of his victory. He has overcome death, sin, corruption. He's overcome man. He's overcome the Adamic. He has taken all of it into himself, put it away. And that's why he could say we are justified through his death, reconciled by his death, but we are saved by his life. Salvation is the one raised from the dead, raised out from that corruptivity, out from that where he is now, as you see in Noah, he is now the ark of safety. And security that brings a people into the reality of a new creation defined by one man who is righteous in the sight of God. One man who has found grace in God's sight. And we are partakers of the grace that he has. So again, Paul is saying that their new birth, their Salvation was not just some ordinary thing God did, just some, uh, what is it? What can we say? First step. First step to the process. No, their salvation was their soul partaking of, becoming participants and receiving God's most ultimate exhibition of power. We don't think about it. Again, we don't think about that. We want power to be exhibited out here. That's why everybody wants to see somebody fall down when they touch him on the head, or they want to see a limb grow again where there wasn't one there. And that's the exhibition of his power. No, the exhibition of his power is to bring a soul from death to life, from darkness to light. And those things fly over the head of people, and they just sound hollow and meaningless. And that's sad. But you know when it will not seem weak and meaningless and insignificant when you hear those words? When you see the one who makes them so. When you see that our salvation, Christ in us, is sufficient and perfect and is much greater than we ever can imagine. That's why he uses this language, exceeding greatness of his power. Now, look at... <clears throat> I'll look at the words in a moment. 
toward us. Toward us who believe. Man, that's good news. It could have just been God did it, God satisfied with it, and that's it. He's God. He could have just said it and done it, and that's it. It's over with. No, 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 no. The good news, the mercy of God was that it's toward us. He turns all that he's satisfied with. He takes all that he glories in, all in which he finds his rest forever and says, now, I want to give this to you as a gift. That's mercy. That's the love of God. We're going to read those verses in a moment. One of the most direct reasons why people push these things off, say this is still something in the future. This is promising. This is saying God did it and he'll do it again one day. Again, I don't understand where that concept even comes from. But I'll read you one of them. I'll read you one of them. Uh, This is a commentary that says it. As the apostle here speaking of the glorious state of the believers after death. That's the power of his resurrection. That's what he's commenting on. That he's talking about the state of the believers after death. The greatness of his power, the power which surpasses all difficulties, uh, being omnipotent, is to understand of that might which is to be exerted in the raising of the body in the last day. How in the world? There's not even an inclination that it points to the future. Paul's talking about a present salvation. He's speaking of a man who fills his body with his fullness. That was just an example of what you read and what's out there, what people hear. We see our own unworthiness in the light of the greatness of the power of God. And while it's right to have an understanding of our weakness, we must realize that the insufficiency that is innate to the earthen vessel is not greater than the power of the treasure that abides in that vessel, ever. The thing you see in the earthen vessel does not define the reality of the treasure. Why shall we see him to not see you anymore? (laughs) That's simple. So you'll stop looking at the vessel to see the reality of the treasure. There's a very simple way to say it. And again, It might be simple in words, but it takes a divine work of God to make that change of perspective, of view. Make my soul behold a reality greater than me, beyond myself, that can't be defined by touch not, taste not, handle not, that cannot be defined by works and labors and effort effort and zeal. That was the only thing that did keep me, I thought, how well I performed. Thank God, it's not. And such is the reason that the exertion and the 
working of God's power in the resurrection is that to which the soul must be opened. And we must see the glory of Christ, the sufficiency of him. If not, again, our insufficient would be our sole ultimate possession or obsession. God's power was never manifested to change the weakness and the insufficiencies of mankind. It was to overcome, override mankind. The bringing them under the sovereign power and subjecting them to the perfect man whose fullness now fills that body. In Colossians chapter 2, he says the same thing. Basically, he's just said in Ephesians. Colossians 2 verse 12, he's speaking of this work. He prefaces all this by saying, of his fullness have we received. You are complete in him. And you, you'll, you'll read, because this, this, this goes back to what Ephesians says about he made him, give him a name above every name, exalted him above all powers and principalities. Well, he says the same thing here. Uh, in him dwells all the fullness of God. Godhead bodily, you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. Same thing. But then he goes on in verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. And that baptism, I won't get to it today, I'm sure, but Romans 6, 1, 2, 3 speaks of that baptism. And he prefaces all of that by saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And many people say, you know, people were coming to him and saying, we just need to sin so that grace will come again. That's not really what he's saying. It's all in the light of what he has said in chapter 5. It is him showing that one, man, one sovereignty of Adam's headship, which was the sovereignty of sin that reigned. He is now saying, now we're brought under the sovereign rule of the grace of God, where we can reign in life, in the life of Christ. We can live by the, under the sovereign rule of another man. And then he says, in the light of that, what shall we say? Do we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, do those two states of being still exist together? Can those things still exist there? What he's speaking of is the absolute impossibility for our soul to exist in two states at one time. You can't still be in sin and be in Christ. You cannot still be in sin and be a partaker of the grace of God. The grace of God doesn't work that way. The grace of God doesn't come upon sinners. The grace of God brings you out of sin into Christ, that you may walk in the newness of his life. That's the work of baptism whereby which we are dead with him and alive through him. The one whom God raised up. That same thing Ephesians 1 is talking about. The power exerted in his resurrection. And I'm, I'm going away. I don't want to go there. But that's, that's very, very significant to understand. Paul is not saying we live in the one and get the benefits of the other. We're in sin. We're sinful. And yet God's grace still abounds to us. That's not how this works. He's brought you out of the one into the other. That's how sovereignty works. You can't be under the rule of two kings. You're either under the rule of sin and death or you're in the rule of life and righteousness. 
The problem is not that we haven't been brought by the work of God from the one to the other. The problem is our soul is not seen where we are. So we try to function in the reality of Christ as if we're still under the condemnation of sin and death. And there has been a complete change. That's the whole reality of newness of life. Not I. Christ lives. That's significant. And most of us miss it. We just, we throw that out there just like it's a cliche, like a, you know, like Nike, just do it. We do about the same thing. It's just a, just words now. It's a jingle in our head, not I but Christ. Now there's great significance to that because those words in themselves declare a mighty victory that God has wrought in his beloved and a victory he's made us partakers of. It's a victory wrought of God. The mercy of God toward us is that he makes our souls partakers of a victory he has won. A conquering king abides in the soul. So he goes on. Colossians 2.12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all trespasses. Whose power is this? Did we volunteer for it and say, hey, I want that? No. You were still dead in your trespasses and sins where he did all of this. Ephesians 2 will say the same thing, right? You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to uh, the course of this world. And then he goes on and speaks of even when you were, that's verse 5, even when you're dead in sin, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. So what is this? Is this like, I want volunteers to come into the new creation? No, the power of this man is that he calls to the souls of those who are dead. And he bids them to come. And he not only bids them to come, but he gives them the ability to respond to the call. You understand? He doesn't just call and invite the soul he created to come to him and receive him as life. He gives that soul the ability to respond to the call. He gives faith to that soul, that that soul may correspond and respond. This is a work of the operation of God. And that word, that phrase, the operation of God, is the same word used here in Ephesians where it says what he wrought in Christ and his mighty working, which he worked. It's the same word. So it is the faith in that work that has brought us into his fullness. That has brought us from death unto life, brought us from uncircumcision or the uncircumcision of our flesh to the perfection of Christ Himself. We hadn't come from uncircumcised to circumcised. Because the fleshly change isn't the point that Paul will say that in many places. We've come from the uncircumcision of a Gentile to the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus, that means it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised because your state doesn't matter. 
Even Colossians would say, if you were circumcised when you were brought into this, don't seek to be uncircumcised. If you were uncircumcised when you came to Christ, don't seek to be circumcised. Because neither one of those things matter, but the keeping of the commandment matters. How does that happen? I thought this was the keeping of the commandment. This thing was what you did to keep the commandments. No, the keeping of the commandment is the law of life living in us as the righteousness of God fulfilled. That's what matters. The sufficiency of his life, the power of his resurrection, abiding in me and overriding all things. All the weaknesses I can still observe. <laughs> and, and, and you can too. All of that. Is it good to work on things? Absolutely. It sure will help you get along with people better. If you work on your attitude or whatever it may be. Stop being such a, you know, whatever. Is that a, is, is that a qualifier to be good with God? Nope. I'm glad for that. Doesn't give me the right to just treat anybody how I get. You understand the distinction. The distinction is what does God behold and what does man behold? Because at the end of the day, God does not behold the same. God is not satisfied in the things that satisfy men. What satisfies me is I be, I, you know, I'm a good person. I want to be a good person. I want to treat people good. That's all great. What God's satisfied with is his son abides in you. And he wants that soul to see that son, not be fascinated and, and, and glory in the fact that you're better than you used to be. What a joke. A lot of fakes out there because that's what they're after. I want genuine. Okay? I want the genuine article in me speaking to you on a day-to-day, flesh-to-flesh basis. I want genuine but I also want to know there's a genuine life that abides in me, that keeps me, and that holds me. When I know that there is no possible way, looking at me, that that can never be true. But the truth is, not I, but Christ. The truth is secured inwardly. The, the truth is not that I can live the life. It's that his life lives in me. And to know the truth is not to know anything other than that life that lives in me. The power of that life is this ultimate display of God's power. That's the power that works in me. That's the power. You don't think there was power necessary to bring you from death to life? What a miracle that is. The greatest exhibition of his power. Telling you. Saw a lot of things in the scripture. Read of a lot of it. But that is nothing in compared. To the power of the work of his son. Who has brought his kingdom. And his victory into the soul. And that's again. I'm losing a lot of time. Um. Uh, who hath raised, us, raised him from the dead, 
You being dead in your sins, circumcision in your flesh, hath he quickened, forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting, ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, having spoiled principalities and powers, and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. There's the victory. Let no man therefore judge you. On the basis of this great thing, this great salvation being described. Now he warns them. Let no man judge you in meats or in drink or in spect of a holy day. And the new moon. Or Sabbath days. Which are a shadow of things. To come or that were coming, that were to come. But the body, the substance, the man the body that casts that shadow in the earth is Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward. That's the reward you already have. That's the crown of victory you already have. In a voluntary humility, the worshiping of angels intruding into the things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up, by his fleshly mind. And here's the problem. And this is why it's significant. Paul at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Brings in the fact that he is the head. Of his body. Not holding the head. From which all the body. By joints and bands having nourishment ministered. And knit together. Increases. Oh. <laughs> I think it works now. Increases. With the increase of God. Whose increase is this? Who nourishes the body? Who supplies it fully? Of his fullness have we all received. He is the fullness that fills his body. That's what he's talking about here. What's the warning? Such a great salvation is being described. And then he's like, hey, but people can tell you. People can deceive you by saying, hey, don't get into this. Don't touch this. Don't taste that. And make that a spiritual thing. And they can turn your heart back. Divert your attention from the sufficiency of the one who abides in you to the sufficiency of your labor and your effort and your zeal. That can still happen. Happens all the time. What's the need? Hold to the head. Find in the head all the sufficiency that you desire. Because in the head, all the sufficiency is found. The head of the body that you are nourishes and supplies to that body all fullness, all spiritual, all completeness. You don't need one thing. You just need to see everything you have in the seeing of the head. There is nothing missing. Not one thing lacks uh, with regard to your salvation except your understanding of the sufficiency of it. And that comes in the seeing of the head, the one who is the head of his body. And that's what he says, seeing you're risen with him, seeing you're brought into his resurrection and raised with him. You are partaker of this resurrection. Set your affection above. Not on the earthly things where you found your righteousness, where you found your, you know, your relationship with God. Touch not, taste not, handle. That's the things on the earth. 
where you found it once, like Paul said, that he did. No. Look to the head. Set your affection above. And when he appears, who is your life already, you will see where you have always been. You will see that you've always been in him, in his glory. You have always, since the moment you were born of him, you were filled with his glory. <coughs> you were a partaker and a beneficiary of the exceeding greatness of his power that has come to us who believe. And that's the importance of the phrase to us. To usward who believe. There's a settled habitation for the sufficiency and fullness of God. That's in Christ. Again, it's, it's important to know that it first is complete in him. That it's first his. And it could be that and full and complete without us. Period. The good news is. God's desire, his love, his heart was to make us partakers of it, was to bring it to the souls of the men he had created so that those souls would be the habitation of his beloved, that his fullness would fill the souls of those who would believe. Because there's a power of God now fully exerted, manifest, but the grace of God is that that fullness would be directed to usward who believe. We receive from his hand, from his working, a victory of that power. And here's, here's things he's already said concerning this usward. To the praise of the glory, this is Ephesians 1, 6 through 8. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us. How? Accepted in the beloved. He hadn't given us anything separate. He hadn't given us this too. He's given us the beloved. There's his working toward us. There's the abounding of his grace to usward in all of his wisdom and prudence. Psalms 117, the two verses that make that psalm up. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise you the Lord. You see, here's the boast. Here's the, here's the praiseworthiness of it all. That those who receive this great mercy. We praise, we boast, we glory in the mercy of God that has bestowed to our soul the life that has overcome the world. Displaced and destroyed the power of darkness. And made us children of the light. Children of the day. Not something we could have done. Romans 5, 8 through 10, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being justified by his blood, shall we be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 1 John 4, verse 9, In this was, the man, was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. There's the, there's the manifestation of the love of God toward us. That we might live by him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God. He takes the weight off of us, doesn't he? Not that we loved him. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. We didn't first love him. He first loved us. How did he do it? He gave us his beloved. How did he do it? He made the soul partaker of a victory men could never win. He made his son the king over the souls of men. And brought those souls into a new creation, into the kingdom of his beloved son. So as... Sheba would tell Solomon after she got up off the floor, having seen his glory. She says, God must love Israel because he has made you their king. See, that's what we're talking about. That's why we got to see him. Because therein we see the love of God manifested toward us. We stop thinking that there's some problem, that there's some issue, that there's a gap, that there's some flaw that needs to be fixed and remedied. No, we see the love of God and it is perfect and pure and doesn't have Rabin or anybody else in view. That's love. When you can give me a life that's other than me, you loved me. I promise you. When you've given me a righteousness in the midst of my unrighteousness, you have loved me. This is Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts, pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing or the baptism of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's Ephesians chapter 1 again in a nutshell. That's the same thing being said there. Now, one of the places that I wanted to go, and what I have, three minutes, five minutes, is uh, Colossians chapter 15, or for, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just want to read a few verses of this, because to me, this is exactly what Ephesians 1 is talking about in the exerting and the working of his power that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and all of that made him the fullness of his body. Same thing. 
Because we're talking in 1 Corinthians 15 about resurrection. Not resurrection as an event, the resurrection as a person. And why it is significant that he was raised up. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. <clears throat> and if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Now, some will look at this and say, well, what that means is, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, that means we can't rise from the dead one day too in the resurrection. That, they, they interpret that. That's not what he's saying at all. They're saying if Christ did not raise, if God did not raise up Christ as we preach to you, there is no resurrection for the dead. Why? Because the resurrection did not raise from the dead. There has to be, the resurrection has to be living to be able to call to the dead. If he's not raised, there's no resurrection. Period. That's what we're addressing here. And that's why he'll go on and say this. Our preaching is in vain if that, and, our, and your faith is in vain. We are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. He's trying to make point, I think. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is empty, vain, and you are yet in your sin. What does that have to do with a future bodily resurrection? Nothing. You know what that has to do with? Being raised from death unto life. And if he did not get raised and overcome death and sin and corruption and all that he overcame and put away by his death, and that we who died with him partook participated in that work, if he not raised up, guess what? We are, not, we are not delivered from the bondage of sin and death that held us because he's the only hope for that to ever happen. The man has to, God has to raise up one over whom death has no claim, over whom sin has no reign, and he did it. And in doing so, he brought about a victory that our soul can now partake of by the work of grace and mercy and bring the souls of men out from death to be partakers of the resurrection himself. And then he goes on and begins to speak of the resurrection of the dead, that it is sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory, there's the glory of him, raised up Christ from the dead, raised in power, there's that power exerted of God. There's a natural body, there's a spiritual body, and then he goes on in 52 and 54 and speaks of the change. Because before that he goes into the two men, right? Adam and Christ, the one who was of the earth earthy, the one who is the Lord from heaven, the one who is a life-giving spirit. Meaning he is the one who gives life. He's making the distinction between two things. Two men, again. 
In a moment, he says, verse 52, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And I read that phrase and it just jumped out at me. Must put on. You know what Jesus says to Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must be. It's not an option. If you're going to know the kingdom, see the kingdom and the victory of the kingdom and know any of this, you must be born again. Must put on incorruption. It's just saying must come from death into life. Same thing. Mortality, immortality. We think these physical bodies live forever. I still hear that. That we're going to put on immortality. And that means these physical bodies. See how we do that? We miss the whole point. That's why we must see life defined in reality. Not in our earthbound perception. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption. The mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. Here's John chapter 5, verse 24, thanks. Uh, truly, truly, I say unto you, this is Jesus, whosoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life, from corruption to incorruption, mortality to immortality. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. To me, that statement encapsulates what we're just reading right here. Here's the trumpet. The men hear that trumpet, and those who believe live. And guess what they do? Exactly what he says here. Then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Who's victory? The victory of the one God raised. The victory over sin, corruption. It's his victory we partake of. And when is that, when is that saying brought to pass? When we are found in him. When we come to hear the voice of the Son of Man and we partake of the power of the resurrection. That's a work of new birth. That's a work of regeneration, if you want to call it that. But what is the necessity from that moment on? See the resurrection. See the life. My prayer for you is that your eyes would be open to see the power God exerted in raising him up from the dead. What does that mean? He brought about a life that is other than you, a righteousness that is out of your reach, a power that has defeated all enemies. And you are a partaker of that victory. That's what we must see. The victor. The one who has won the battle. And then we'll stop worrying about fighting our own. Stop trying to, you know, pick fights with the devil. <laughs> you know? Or thinking he's trying to pick one with us. 
No, we stand certain in a victory wrought before we ever came to it. There was no battle when I got here, and there's no battle now. The greater than Solomon reigns in his kingdom, and guess what? There's no enemy in the land. So, put that before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this salvation, for this victory. A victory of which you have made us partakers by your mercy. Open our eyes to see. To comprehend the reality that we have come to. Let us see the one who fills us with the fullness of himself. We ask it in his name. Amen. All right. Thank you. Thank you.